0: The cause of this death was blunt force trauma to the head. The missing mother who was found dead died from blunt force trauma. It says the child died from blunt force trauma to the head. The Emmy's office also confirms she died of blunt force trauma. The medical examiner says the cause of death was blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. Blunt force trauma. Yes. <laughs> Come on, bro. Hello, nine, nine, and nine, welcome nine. to Blumforce Force Trauma, the true crime podcast where we smoke weed and talk murder and Mark sings. I don't sing. <laughs> I don't do that. Um, I'm Jamie. i Mark, obviously. And we're back with part two of the Israel Key story. Um, one day late. Okay, we usually put an episode out on Wednesday. I know it's Thursday. Uh, we had some unforeseen circumstances pop up, but um, that's Okay. We're back. And last week, we talked a bit about Israel Key's childhood and upbringing, as well as one of his most notable crimes, uh, the brutal kidnapping, assault, and murder of a Vermont couple, Bill and Lorraine Courier. Which, if you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and listen to that episode first, because we also discussed his methodology and what set him apart from some of these other more notorious serial killers like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, etc. Um, but the spark notes version of that, I guess, just to refresh your memory, if um, you have already listened to part one, is that Israel Keyes had no victim profile. As we said, his murders were based solely on convenience and impulse, um, although that's not to say he wasn't extremely calculated and thorough in his planning. Um, In a nutshell, what he would do is take these long road trips on the premise of business or visiting family, and along the way, he would scout these remote locations and bury a five-gallon bucket containing, like, guns, duct tape, rope, Drano, gloves, zip ties, basically anything one would need to commit a murder. And so... He would do this and like note the geographic coordinates so that years later, when he was back in the area or had these urges to kill, he had everything he needed ready and waiting for the perfect circumstance to arrive. So despite the fact that his victim choice was random, the crimes themselves were extremely calculated and well planned out. That is, however, until his last and final crime, which we will be diving into today, um, the horrific kidnapping, assault, and murder of 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. Now, this case, while still calculated and cold-blooded, he did start to get a little sloppy. Um, and I attribute that to like his ego. I think he was able to fly under the radar for so long and like get away with what he was doing for 10-plus years. Um, that he probably wanted to test his own boundaries and see what he was capable of like getting away with. And his confidence just got the best of him. Well, that and probably an escalated urge to outdo himself. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because uh, in his interviews with police, these infamous interrogation tapes, um, he gets into the serial killers that he looked up to in a sense, and Ted Bundy being one of them. And he compared himself on the basis of their crimes being sexually motivated um, and as we know, Ted Bundy really pushed every boundary in the end, and it ultimately led to his demise, which, thank God. But uh, nonetheless, he may have flew under the radar for even longer had he not gotten greedy and like sloppy with his methodology and actions. So, as we'll see, Israel Keys also followed suit in that his last and final crime before his arrest in 2012 uh, happened right in his own backyard, literally and figuratively. Um... So not in one of those remote locations or across state lines, but rather right in his hometown of Anchorage, Alaska. Um, And what he goes on to do here is like extremely fucked up and ballsy and like morbid, vile, all the things. Um, So just buckle up, okay, Ma? I'm buckled. Okay, well, before we get into it, I just want to note that I am smoking a hybrid strain called Sunny G. Uh, Rolled myself a little joint joint, um, which I suggest you guys do as well if you're in the position to do so because the story is just fucking batshit. Because we better get Liddy, like a titty on oh the hair. Oh my kid. god! Oh my god! Get this out of your system now because this story is like disgustingly sad. Okay. Because all the other stories we did were not. But the yeah, I know. Okay. Whatever. Um, Okay. So again, my sources for this episode are the Anchorage Daily News, alaskapublic.org, Refinery29, The New York Post, oxygen.com, a book by Maureen Callahan called American Predator, morbidtourism.com, and a podcast called Murder in America. So here we go. Let's start with a little bit about our victim here, Samantha Koenig. Um, Samantha Koenig was born on August 30th, 1993 in Anchorage, Alaska um now she had a strained relationship with her mother darlene um, and there weren't many details that i could find like out about that other than the fact that she lived with her father james full time and the two were very close and had like a great relationship and uh james recalls his daughter as being full of life with a big personality and smile she loves animals and photography and music and she even wrote like songs and poetry Um, She loved to fish and play video games with her boyfriend and would just engage in like the typical behaviors and activities that someone of her age would be doing. Um, While it was ultimately her dream to work with animals, particularly in the equestrian field, she had plans to either enlist in the Navy or study to become a nurse so that she could build like a lucrative career for herself. And that was the thing about Samantha. She was a very hard worker. Um, she had acquired a job as a barista at a local Anchorage coffee shop called Common Grounds, which was like a small walk-up or drive-up little pop-up shop is what I would describe it as, like a stationary food truck of sorts. Like it wasn't on wheels or anything. But like Patrons couldn't access the inside. You'd have to walk up to the window in front or drive up to the window like in the back to place your order. Um, and this was in like a prime location right off of Tudor Road in Anchorage and it was in the middle of a parking lot where like other stores were located. So it was very easily accessible and often busy. And Samantha's coworkers would describe her as being a responsible worker who was extremely neat and clean and would always leave the place spotless after her shifts which is why the employee who opened the shop on the morning of February 2nd, 2012, following Samantha's closing shift um, the night before, sensed that something had gone awry when she noticed a mess of spilled coffee and napkins everywhere, as well as all of the money being missing from the cash register drawer which that was the detail that was the final straw her coworkers knew that she would never leave a mess behind like that much less like steal from the register so this employee attempts to reach samantha um, but at this point her phone is off and going directly to voicemail so she's not getting a response from her either so with that um, the employee makes a call to local police on the morning of february 2nd 2012. now just to backtrack a little bit here um, in addition to living with her father full-time, Samantha's boyfriend, Dwayne, also lived in the home with them. Um, I'm not sure what the circumstances were that led to that, but he lived there and the two shared a car, which is like a black pickup truck. Um, and on February 1st of uh, 2012, Dwayne was dropping Samantha off at Common Grounds for her afternoon shift, um, where she would be closing the shop by 8 p.m. Follow? Right. Okay. Now, the two had been fighting earlier in the day because Samantha had suspected that Dwayne was cheating on her. So they exchanged some words via text message that I'm sure he regrets now looking back. But still, the plan was that he was going to be picking her up from her shift upon closing, despite the fact that they were fighting. So around 8 p.m., he shows up to Common Grounds to pick up Samantha, uh, but he notices the lights are off and that Samantha is nowhere to be found. So he waits around for a while, um, but he ultimately decides to leave and head back home, like assuming that she had gotten a ride from a friend or something because of the fight. So he figured he would just give her some space or whatever. But um, when he arrives back home um, and Samantha's father, James, says that he hadn't had contact with her either, The two are a bit concerned, although like not in full panic mode just yet. Uh, They were sure she was just like with friends or something, as I said, so they kind of just waited out. Of course, they've texted and called her a few times, but no answer. Um, And finally, a few hours later at 1130 p.m., Dwayne receives a text message from Samantha's phone that reads, F you asshole. I know what you did. I'm going to spend a couple days with friends. Need time to think and plan. Let my dad know that was the text um so with that both Dwayne and her father are thinking like okay well at least she's safe like although the language used in the text message from Samantha was a bit off from what Dwayne was used to they at least took solace in knowing that she wasn't missing or anything like that so they head to bed um and around three o'clock in the morning that same night Dwayne hears some noise coming from out front, and it sounded like a car door is being opened or closed or whatever, so he quickly goes out there to see like what it was. Maybe it was Samantha coming home, like he didn't know. So he goes out there and he ends up locking eyes with a man who literally has his hand on the door of their black pickup truck that he shares with Samantha. Um, But the man quickly runs off and Dwayne doesn't go chasing him. He instead just like goes over to the car to see if anything was stolen or whatever. Um, and he notices that the only two things that were taken were Samantha's license and debit card. So, like, in his mind, at the time, he's thinking, like, did she send this man there to grab these items for her? Or, like, he, he didn't necessarily think anything sinister at the time. Um, although, what he didn't know was that the man he had just locked eyes with was no other than Israel Keys himself. So... The next morning rolls around, and as I said, another employee of Common Grounds is opening the store following Samantha's shift the night before. And when she notices the mess and missing money, she calls the police and explains why she thinks that something went seriously wrong here the night before. And although police assume upon arrival that Samantha probably just stole the money and left, um, they still requested the CCTV footage from both the interior and exterior security cameras to, like, see if that could be confirmed. Um, but what they actually see, however, like far exceeds their expectations. Um, they see that around 7.30 p.m., Samantha appears to be assisting someone at the walk-up window and then proceeds to make some sort of coffee drink. But when she gets back to the window to deliver the drink, she immediately backs away slowly with her hands raised in the air and the silhouette of a gun can be seen pointing in from the window. Um, the assailant presumably tells her to shut the lights because she immediately flips both switches um, along the wall. And then the CCTV footage gets like pretty dark and harder to make out, which is probably exactly what the guy wanted to yeah. have happen. Um, so next, Samantha can be seen opening the register, you know, taking the money out, presumably because she was told to, and had a gun pointing at her. Um and after she hands off the money, you can see her go down on her knees with her hands up. And next thing you know this guy literally comes through the window and he's wearing all black and appears to be like tying up her hands and such before scooping her up and taking her out of the side door um, now from the exterior footage you can see like the back of a tall slender man like dragging Samantha out towards the parking lot but unfortunately that's where the footage site like ends so with that police know that Samantha did not steal from the drawer and that's something really bad it did in fact happen there the evening before Um, So right away, Samantha is declared missing and her family is informed. Um, Police, of course, look into her father James and boyfriend Dwayne right off the bat, you know, just to like roll them out for certain before proceeding to next steps. But both are cleared of any involvement like fairly quickly. Um, And in interviewing Dwayne, he shares uh, the odd text that he had received from Samantha's phone at 1130 p.m., which is about four hours post abduction. Um, as well as the strange encounter he had with a man who had clearly just stolen Samantha's license and credit card from their car around 3.30 a.m. So police are able to conclude that all of these events are related, the kidnapping, the text message, and the theft from the car. Right. So with all of those details, police put out a BOLO, which stands for Be on the Lookout, and um, provided a description of Samantha and basically had all hands on deck like searching for her. Um, a press conference was held where Samantha's father, James, delivers like a really sad, like gut-wrenching speech, especially because we all know like how this ends. Um, but he basically pleads for his daughter to be returned back home. He speaks directly to the perpetrator and says that he will give them whatever they want. They don't even have to involve police if they don't want to, so long as Samantha's returned safely to him and just asks that everyone like prays for his daughter to come back home. Right it's like super sad you know Um, but in the meantime police request cctv footage from the surrounding stores on tudor road to see if they can get any additional sightings of the two leaving common grounds that night Um, and they were able to retrieve footage of the man walking samantha to a white chevy pickup truck but as he walks around to the driver's side door they see that samantha was able to get away and starts running down tudor road Um, And for a minute, she's like not in frame. You know, you can see the assailant running in her direction. Um, And just a few minutes later, Samantha can be seen once again, being walked back to the truck. He had obviously caught up to her and was able to get her back, unfortunately. Um, But the problem is that a white Chevy pickup truck was literally the most common vehicle in Anchorage. So really anyone could be responsible here and it, it didn't do much to like narrow down the suspects. I guess they couldn't make out the license plate. Um, so they're not much further along than they were before, but like they're they're trying. Um and their investigation is basically at a standstill for the next three weeks. Um, that is until February twenty fourth, two thousand twelve, when It's my dad's birthday. Well, happy birthday um to my father in law. This is a <coughs> shitty story to have associated with your birthday. Um Okay, so February 24th, 2012, Dwayne receives a second text message um, from Samantha's phone and the text reads, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she pretty? Ain't she purdy? Um, so Dwayne and James obviously take this right to police who immediately escort them to Connor Park, like not knowing what they'd find there. Mm. Um, but Connor Park is like a huge area of countryside right outside of Anchorage. And there's a dog park there and a trail and everything, so there's a lot of land and access points and such, so police dispatch more officers to the scene just in case anything were to go awry. So when police arrive, um, they go up to the Connor Park sign as instructed by the text message, and they see a missing flyer for a dog named Albert. And pinned behind that flyer was a Ziploc bag containing a Polaroid photo of Samantha, which was confirmed by her father, as well as a typed ransom note now in this photo samantha is looking pretty beat up like she'd really been going through it um she was wearing a black shirt which was different from the shirt she was wearing the day she was kidnapped about three weeks earlier she was wearing like a green shirt at the time Um, and her expression in the photo is pretty blank Um, and pictured beside her was a current newspaper where the date could be like clearly seen so The ransom note basically stated that the abductor wanted $30,000 deposited into Samantha's bank account and that he'd be heading out of town soon, so it needed to happen fast. Um, And the note also detailed the fact that Samantha almost got away, stating, quote, she almost got away twice, once on Tudor Road, which as we know is confirmed by the CCTV footage, and once in the desert, must be losing my touch, end quote. So right now i know the desert thing doesn't make much sense because we're talking about alaska here but put a pin in it because it does get addressed later on mm. um so please suggest that they only deposit half the amount of money into the account in hopes that the abductor will establish contact again like seeking the other half so the family obliges and deposits fifteen thousand dollars into samantha's account um, which is actually quickly pooled and donated by the community which is really nice on their part um but in the in addition to that, uh, police place a tracker on Samantha's debit card so that they would be notified with the exact location of the transaction, should it be made. Um, and with that, they have their first real lead and like glimmer of hope in a long time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if you haven't connected the dots by now, um, this assailant we're talking about here is obviously Israel Keyes. Um, and for someone who usually flies under the radar and is like so, meticulous and calculated in his crimes to do something this ballsy and direct is like sort of out of character like not only are you doing this right in anchorage which by all accounts is like a pretty tight-knit community um like people know each other you know but you're also establishing contact with the victim's family and police like that's where i think the overconfident ego stepped in and i think he actually thought that like he would get away with it all maybe he was just maybe he wanted to be close I don't, I don't know, let's, let's see. Um, so just as police thought, about a week later, the debit card is used for the first time right in Anchorage, Alaska, although the transaction failed because the daily withdrawal limit was $500 and Keyes tried to take out $600. So rather than attempt another transaction, knowing that he was probably being tailed by the police at this point, he simply leaves. And by the time police arrive, he's gone. Um, still, they swipe for fingerprints and check security camera footage, but they see that had, he had been wearing gloves, sunglasses, like a face mask, and a beanie cap, um, were completely covered up. So they're not able to identify him at that point. Not even his race, really. Um, the next transaction wouldn't be until a week later, on March seventh, two thousand twelve, when Keys withdrew five hundred dollars from Samantha's account at an ATM in Wilcox, Arizona, which was four thousand miles away from Anchorage. Yeah. Comes in. That's what I thought too, except no. <laughs> yeah, just hold out. Um, so again, police are dispatched because at this point um, the case has been made like national news, but still, police arrive too late to catch him. Uh, so the very next day, he makes another withdrawal at a bank in Shepherd, Texas, then in Humble, Texas, two days after that. But this time, they were able to see the car that he was getting in and out of from the security camera footage, and they were able to determine that the vehicle was a rented white Ford Focus, which just so happened to be the most widely rented car across the United States at the time, which is telling of, you know, his knowledge. Um, So, being that he was seemingly settled for a few days in Texas. Anchorage police begin working with Texas Rangers near Lufkin, Texas, um, to bring them up to speed on, like, the situation and request that they put out a bolo out over there for this white Ford Focus. So a few days later on March 13th, um, Texas Ranger Stephen Rayburn calls in that a rented white Ford Focus had been located in the parking lot of a hotel in Lufkin. Um, And he was instructed to check the records of the hotel guests for like any adult male that would be matching the physical description that they had thus far of the assailant's body type, um, and particularly one who paid for their stay in cash. Um, And while doing this, he literally sees Israel Keyes walk out of the hotel lobby and enter that white Ford Focus that's in the parking lot so like they know they got the guy they're looking for um because i guess the records also like aligned with the fact that there was someone staying there that matched his body type that paid in cash um so officer rayburn like skirts out of there makes a call to corporal brian henry of the highway patrol and asks that he keep an eye out for a white ford focus and provided him with the license plate and the description of the man driving um but even if Henry came across the vehicle, he unfortunately like can't pull him over without without cause. Um, so when he spots the vehicle on the road, he begins to trail the car, waiting for like some sort of traffic violation. Yeah. Um, and about a mile later, he's pulled up right behind him at a red light. And when the light turns green. Um, Brian Henry is able to clock him at 58 miles per hour in a 50 mile per hour zone and is able to pull him over once and for all, finally putting an end to what was a literal like 14 year murder spree. Jeez. Um, so they pull him over and Keys was seemingly like calm and collected at first, uh, but quickly began to do the telltale thing that one does when is guilty of something Um, and begins to divulge a slew of unwarranted details regarding why he's in Texas in the first place and the fact that he's sharing a hotel room with his brother, like all of these unnecessary details. He's just like spitting shit out of his mouth. Um, And when police begin to search the car, he's like getting a little agitated, asking like, what are you doing? You can't be searching the car. Like, what is your cause for searching the car? Um, And they deflect his questions by asking him like where he's from why he rented the car and like they basically try to keep him talking while they search Um, And they can see he's getting nervous and he's like sweating through his wife beater Um, And within minutes they find a slew of incriminating evidence like a green backpack containing zip ties gloves tons of pornographic DVDs including transgender porn Um, And probably the most damning evidence of all they find Samantha Koenig's license and debit Mm -hmm. card yep although samantha herself was still nowhere to be found um so with that texas ranger stephen rayburn um, is able to arrest israel keys for what they currently think is the kidnapping of samantha koenig and he's extradited back to anchorage for interrogation and this is where all the blanks are finally filled in and we learn what actually happened so is texas where the desert was no we'll get there we'll get there um But this is where the blanks are filled in, and we learn what actually happened to Samantha Koenig since her abduction back on February 1st. So this is like a month and two weeks later. Um, So if you remember from part one, upon his arrest... Israel had laid out some demands that he wanted met before he would open up about anything. Um, but they, those demands happened in stages. So for him to divulge the details behind Samantha's like ultimate murder, he asked that um, his name not be leaked to the press because, yeah, he didn't want his daughter having to like see and live with the gravity of his crimes. You thought about that before you did all this, but, you know, No shit, and just you. wait till what he does, like it's so bad. Um, no and the second thing he demanded at the time was just a cigar. Um, so, being that police had like zero information as to where Samantha was, like currently was, um, which was their number one priority at the time. They had to oblige. Yeah. Demands. They had to oblige his demands to like keep him talking. So they promised to keep his name from the media, like for now, um, and they give him a cigar. So with that, Israel lights it on up, takes a big puff. Um, And begins to divulge all of the details start to finish about what he did with Samantha and it's bad like really bad Um, so Full-ass blanket trigger warning for like everything. I'm about to say here because it gets like bad 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 okay Okay, so he starts with describing her kidnapping, stating that he had staked out the location for several days before the attack. Um, noticed that there were like mountains of snow surrounding the perimeter, so there was like more privacy in the vicinity than usual. And to top it off, uh, they closed later than any other surrounding stores. So that's why he chose Common Grounds. Um, so he goes on to say that he never met or even seen Samantha prior to that night. And that it could have been any one of the employees working there at the time. He just had a plan to execute the crime regardless of who Who the victim could be. Yeah. And like, how is he to know that it's not like some big, strong man, like working at common grounds that day. Like he really, right. So he was just getting like kind of ballsy about it, but whatever. So he basically describes. My thing is he went to the window and ordered a coffee first, right? Yeah. So he definitely, he, he was going to scope it out to see right. like what he was up against first. Right. So yeah. So if he saw a big burly man there, he wasn't going to try that. Yeah, you're probably right. He didn't say any of that, but like, that's probably right. what the case was. Um, so he basically describes what we see on the CCTV footage. Um, only he fills in the blanks of what he was saying to Samantha at the time. Um, so he demanded all the cash from the register and ordered her onto her knees, threatening to shoot her if she moved um and then he climbs into the window and proceeds to bound samantha's hands behind her back with zip ties which i thought he wasn't going to use anymore according to last week's episode but whatever bounds her with zip ties um and all the while samantha is trying to like protect the situation from escalating further by saying like you know my dad's going to be here any minute to pick me up and he's going to see what's going on and call police like just let me go and get out of here before that happens like trying to right you know make this stop right um but instead Israel shoves a bunch of napkins in her mouth to gag her and prevent her from speaking further which is the same thing he had done to Lorraine courier only with paper towels so I don't know what that's about but um he then leads her out to his white pickup truck and this is where she's seen on the CCTV footage like trying to escape but he catches up to her um places her in the truck and bounce her feet together with zip ties, uh, explaining that this will all be over soon. He's just holding her for ransom. Um, but if she were to try anything again, he would shoot and kill her. Um, so the two drive around for hours. Um, yeah, I have a question. Yeah. So he went to the house later that night into the truck to get the license and the debit card. Yeah, right. we'll get into that. Why wouldn't she have that on her? Well, she shared the truck with her boyfriend so maybe she like just left her wallet behind in the truck when he dropped off at work how many fucking times do i leave this house without that shit you know like Mm -hmm. she had her phone that's all she really needed she had a ride home she didn't really need either of those things and it may have just been accidentally left behind you know um yeah so the two drive around for hours uh because it was israel's intention to bring samantha back to his home but he knows that his girlfriend kimberly is a night owl and that he has to wait it out until later for her to be like fast asleep let's not forget about his daughter okay um like she's obviously home as well but at this point she was probably sleeping for a while but um it wasn't until four hours later at around 11 p.m that israel brings samantha to his home and leads her to the shed which is like set further into the backyard he then shackles her with rope by her feet and neck which is connected to the side walls of his shed by like eye hooks and starts to question her on whether or not she has a debit card, where her cell phone was, etc. Um, and this is when he realizes that her cell phone had been left back at the coffee shop. And she tells him that she left her debit card and her boyfriend's truck back home. So he demands the address and she provides it to him and he heads out on his own to go retrieve both items. But before leaving, he threatens her to make no noise, um, and he blasts heavy metal music in the shed in case she were to scream, and double padlocks the door and leaves. Let's not forget his wow. daughter and girlfriend are literally asleep inside the home, just like feet away right. from the shed. So it's like and sickening. He's blasting heavy metal music. Like yeah, it's yeah. Um, I don't know what kind of like soundproofing measures he took. Yeah. To, you know. Um, he then drives around for a few more hours before making it to Samantha's home to steal the debit card out of the truck, and that's when her boyfriend, Dwayne, came face-to-face with him. Looking back, I mean, no blame can be placed on anyone besides Israel Keys here, but I imagine Dwayne probably wished he had the foresight at the time to know, like, how dangerous this man was and what was going on, you know what I mean? So... Um, Key's attempts a withdrawal right away at a local ATM. But to his disappointment, there was only 98 cents in the account. So he drives back home to the shed. Um, At this point, it's like 3.30 in the morning. So hours had gone by. And when he gets in, Samantha asks like, how did everything go? Like, did you get the card? Like expecting to be let free at that point. Um, But that was definitely not part of the plan. Um, He tells her that she's not going anywhere just yet. And he offers her wine and a cigarette to try to have her, like, loosen up, which she apparently accepts. I mean, he said that he drank from the same bottle to, like, prove that it wasn't poisoned or anything, um, like, to make her feel comfortable in taking it. So she accepts, which I, like, cannot blame her for at this point. Give me all of the cigarettes and wine you have if this is the situation you have me stuck in. You know what I mean? Um, But after a little while, what he does next is he cranks the music back up tightens the ropes that Samantha is connected to so that she wasn't able to move about really at all and Proceeds to rape her for quite some time um, And he shares that once all is said and done Samantha realized that she was never going to be leaving that place and he knew that she knew that he said quote She knew it was coming. She knew that she was going to die at that point You could see it on her face and that's like the second time. He kind of said something that's like that like- Yeah, it's, like, really fucked. Like, so fucking casual, morbid. It's, like, he's disgusting. Um, But he then tells police that... Police. Police. (laughs) Son of the police. (laughs) Um, But he then tells police that he laid out a huge blue tarp wall-to-wall and placed her on top of it and proceeded to strangle Samantha to death using his bare hands. Like, he had gloves on, but... Words. Yeah, using his hands, um, and he actually jokes that it took longer than he like thought it would. Like he literally laughs while explaining that it took a few songs before she was gone. Like, I the terror behind that, like between what just happened and the fucking blaring heavy metal music, like the anxiety that she must have had was probably through the fucking roof. You know, he's just awful. Um, uh, so yeah she was killed within less than 12 hours of being kidnapped but unfortunately it only manages to get worse from here so after samantha is dead he rolls her body up in the tarp and shoves her into a tool cabinet in the corner of his shed double padlocks the doors and heads back inside to shower to wake up his uh girlfriend and daughter for their flight because they had a carnival cruise planned for the coming week and so in just a few hours they were due to be flying from anchorage to louisiana where they would embark on a weeks-long, all-inclusive vacation while Samantha's dead body sits in his shed. Yeah. Um, So he explains that the temperatures are freezing in Alaska, so he wasn't too concerned with, like, decomposition at the time, and says that he just went and enjoyed the vacation with, like, not a care in the world. Um, And directly from that vacation, like, once the cruise ship rolled back into Louisiana, the family rents a car and drives to Texas for israel's sister's wedding so he actually wasn't even back in alaska until almost three weeks later on february 20th of 2012. Wow. however he later divulges that while in texas he commits a bank robbery at the national bank of texas in azel where he escaped with ten thousand dollars which police are able to confirm and apparently commits another murder although he provides no details other than the fact that the victim was male So police look up some missing person cases that were established during the time of israel's like stay in texas and they were able to link a few names but with no solid details from him other than like circumstantial evidence aligning they were unable to prosecute him or pry further Um, so for now their main focus was still set on samantha because they still don't know where she is he's sharing details um so israel's now back in alaska three weeks later Um, his girlfriend, Kimberly is back to work as a nurse doing the overnight shifts. So she's out of the house a lot. Um, and he begins to plan his next steps. So he takes his daughter with him to target and buys a Polaroid camera, a typewriter, computer paper, and like a toy for his daughter and some other like odds and ends things. Um, and when he gets home and his daughter goes to sleep for the night, he leaves her in the house alone and heads back out to the shed for the first time in three weeks Um, he proceeds to unravel the tarp and tie her limbs to rope and suspend her in the air towards the roof of the shed where he blasts a space heater towards her so that she would essentially defrost and he then leaves her there um, and his daughter home alone and goes sifting through a nearby dumpster for a newspaper with a current date, um, and then heads back home to like type this ransom letter. And he explained that he wore gloves to open the paper and load it into the typewriter, and that no fingerprints like were left behind. Um, and now his plan is to photograph Samantha alongside the current newspaper and place the photo with the ransom note to, quote, prove that she was alive, you know? Right. Um, But when he goes back to the shed to see how everything's going in there with her body defrosting, um, he notices that while her body was in fairly decent condition, um, she most certainly looked dead, obviously. Um, So what he does next is beyond disgusting. Um, He goes into the house to grab his girlfriend's makeup bag and goes back out to the shed to literally give Samantha a full face of makeup, like concealer, foundation, blush, lipstick, all of it with his girlfriend's makeup um but before doing that he decides to rape samantha's dead corpse so he's a necrophiliac to boot um yeah (laughs) mark has nothing to say about it um but during this time he hears a knock on the door of his shed and it's his daughter looking for him So, like, she had a nightmare or something, which, like, is kind of eerie to think about. Um, And when he realizes she's out there, he, like, yells to her to go back inside, that he'd be in in a minute, tuck her back into bed, um, which she does. And then he does leave and go tuck her back into bed. Um, And then he goes back to the shed for hours, applying makeup to Samantha's face, braiding her hair, and basically making her seem more put together, I guess. Yeah. Um, but when he goes to snap the photo, he's having trouble keeping her eyes open, so... Let me guess, he sews them open. Yeah, so he then sews her eyelids open using fishing wire and a curved needle. Jesus Yeah. Um, so with that, he takes the photo and places all contents into the Ziploc baggie that he will leave on the sign at Connor Park as the text message describes that he sent to Dwayne. Um, from Samantha's phone on February 24th, Uh, which this is ultimately the photo that her father sees and confirms her identity, all the while thinking she's alive, although appears to be in pretty rough shape. Um, But little did they know she was actually already dead when that photo was taken. But before driving to Connor Park, um, he explains that with being defrosted by the heater, Samantha's body began to decompose and smell, and he knew that he had to get rid of it. Um, So he lays the tarp back out and proceeds to dismember Samantha limb by limb with a hacksaw, including her head, and stuffs her into a small suitcase that he places in the back of his truck on the way to drop the ransom note. From there, he proceeds to drive out to Matanuska Lake, which is like a popular ice fishing location, Um, and he picks a spot to cut a decent sized hole into the 24 inch thick ice. And he sets up camp there for the day as if he was just casually fishing. Um, Now it's pretty typical for a fisherman to place like a tent around their fishing hole there for them to keep like somewhat warm while fishing since it's freezing. Um, So that's what Israel does, which conceals him as he opens the small suitcase and begins to tie Samantha's remains to weights with rope and dumps her limb by limb into the hole cut into Matanuska Lake. Um, and before leaving, he made sure to catch a fish and bring it back home to his family for dinner that night. So mm. fucking vile, you're fishing in the same water, you just dumped dead body in the same exact vicinity. Um, so with that, police have all of the information they need to go and recover Samantha's body. Um, a dive team is hired to search the location at Matanuska Lake and almost immediately upon entering the depths of the water, body cam footage worn by the divers um, show each of the limbs including her head floating all around one another so as they pull up her body uh, the divers have like a moment of silence and respect for samantha um, and she could finally be laid to rest after enduring the most like horrific nightmare imaginable um, her family is obviously devastated and they hold a memorial service for her Um, And more than anything, they're focused on Israel Keys being brought to justice. Um, But of course, he would not make that an easy task. So in the interim of time between Samantha's body being discovered and the date of his first court appearance, police know that there are more victims out there um, and they try to reason with him for more information regarding those cases. So this is where he lists off the rest of his demands, um, like his girlfriend's car being returned to her, and a fast-track death penalty, um, and asks police to continue to do their best to keep his name out of the media. Um, and they do their best to oblige, and he then divulges the details behind the murder of Bill and Lorraine Carrier, which is the story we covered heavily in last week's episode. And while he's giving police, like, some other breadcrumbs to work with, um, he appears to slowly but surely be, like, cooperating in a way. Um, That is, however, until his very first court appearance. Um, Almost immediately upon entering the courtroom, he attempts to escape the custody of deputies. So earlier in the day, he managed to loosen his shackles with like a chewed down wooden pencil, apparently. Um, And he loosened them enough where they weren't off, but he could easily remove his feet from them like if someone wasn't looking at his feet while he was standing behind the podium. So he's literally doing that. Um, And he runs off and darts out of the courtroom, jumps over the second story banister, and like heads towards the front door of the courthouse. Um, But he was quickly apprehended, thank God, and like brought back to a cell. So he didn't get away. Um, But with this, police are pissed. And they explain that like they can no longer protect his name from the media if he intends to do shit like this and try to play them. Um, So they start to demand that he provide them with like more victim names, less of these bullshit breadcrumbs, um, more details. Um... But with them not being able to fast track a death penalty process as he wants, because like that's not how it works, um, he stays tight-lipped and gives them nothing else other than the fact that he had four bodies in Washington State, another body in New York, and he provided like a five-year time gap for each of those instances, which makes it extremely difficult for police to gather any sort of hard evidence to identify the victims, much less find the bodies and prosecute them further. And this goes on for months, mind you. So police are frustrated. Um, Israel's frustrated that he can't seem to get an execution date as he wishes, but that's not how it works, again. Um, so he decides to take matters into his own hands. So on the evening of December second, two 2012, which is 10 months after Samantha's murder, despite being placed on suicide watch, which was supposed to like boost the security of what was going on in his cell, Um, Israel Keyes uses the bedsheet to fashion a noose, which he secured to the top posts of the bunk, and places the loop around his neck. And he then uses the sharpened tip of a pencil that he stole from the library earlier that day uh, to slit his own wrists and proceeds to suspend himself uh, flat onto the bed so that he would simultaneously suffocate while bleeding out. Um, And his dead body wouldn't be discovered until 7 a.m. the next morning. So with that, Israel Keyes was gone, along with a slew of information um, that he withheld from police that could have led to closure for like so many families. Um, And not only that, but he was never able to be formally brought to justice for the murders of Samantha Koenig and Bill and the Rain Courier, which is just a slap in the face to like those families again. Um, And officers regret not taking even further precautions to ensure that Israel had no way of injuring himself. So they sort of beat themselves up over that, which I get. Um, but Israel did however leave a few cryptic clues behind in his cell Um, he left a note which is kind of hard to read but you can find it online and he writes some kind of like metaphoric morbid poem like alluding to the monster that he is Um, but it was in no way remorseful it was more or less like a theatrical explanation of like evil Um, and he leaves a paper with the word Belize written in his own blood so police wonder if there's some major crime that he was a part of over there as well and last but not least he leaves behind 11 individual pieces of paper each with a single skull drawn in blood his own blood Um, some small some large uh, which leave police wondering if each represents a victim Mm -hmm. um he apparently admitted to killing a child so the fact that there were a few, like, tinier skulls drawn leave police wondering if that was symbolic of, like, the age of some of his victims. But they, they really don't know. And it's just, like, crazy. Like, I've, I really could have done, like, a three- or four-parter on this guy because there's just so much more information out there in regards to, like, what he was doing between the years of 1997 to 2012 when he was eventually arrested. Um, And there are some cases that police are almost certain he is responsible for but because they have no DNA from the case or like hard confessions from Israel They can't formally connect him But they're pretty sure of his involvement in at least six other murders based on information He provided and things found on his computer his travel records all of that But police really think that he's responsible for upwards of a hundred or more murders um, based on the frequency of his travel and, you know, ATMs and everything like that. And Mm. I completely believe that's possible. Because it wasn't until he got, like, greedy and ballsy and, like, established contact with police and the family that he got caught, you know? So who knows how long this could have went on for had he not done that. Um, But yeah, there's, like, there's so much more information out there that I couldn't even squeeze into this episode. Like, there's something about him getting plastic surgery in Mexico. He got, like, a lap band done. Um, he got a lap band on and Botox and nobody really knows why because he was like already a fit slender man they think that he did this so that he could eat less throughout the day so he could like drive for longer durations of time without having to stop at like a fast food joint or something where he could potentially be seen on a camera Um, and then the Botox thing Botox is known to like Uh, help like a sweat problem they put in like your armpits and stuff like that so they think that he got like Botox so that he wouldn't leave DNA DNA behind yeah Um, and those were really the only procedures they can confirm he did because there was nothing facially done he looks exactly the same in progressive pictures and everything but he did go to Mexico to get plastic surgery like that was confirmed he was confirmed to have a lap band he was confirmed to have gotten Botox they don't know the literal cause of why but based on his activities they're assuming it had to do with what we just talked about um but yeah go watch like all documentaries and shit on him because there's so much more to like hear about that's crazy um but this basically was the story of israel keys Mm. so what did you think marv he's a sick fuck he's a really sick fuck and I don't give a fuck what he says about caring about his daughter. I'm sure, like, it had more to do with, like, his embarrassment there. It's not so much, like, her feelings. Because he did all of these things while she was right there. Had any opportunity to catch him doing these, like, horrific things. You know what I mean? So, it I, I don't know. more to protect her innocence than it was anything else. I think so, too. But it's, like, protect her innocence by not being right. a sick fuck like that. By not being a fucking douchebag. Right. Like no, I get it. Like he just totally thought he was smarter than everybody else, and this would never—he would never have gotten caught, right. but he did. Um, yeah, so that was really heavy. So should we lighten it up a bit more? Yeah, I would say. Yeah, me uh, too. Yeah, so you know me—I have to pull stories that are like relative to the story in one way or another um, because that's just how I like—I'm able I was to filter say them easier. To poop again. <laughs> Usually it's that too, but. Um, So these are like some embarrassing, funny, whatever, travel stories that have taken place. It's from a website called Jessie on a Journey. And I guess she like blogs about her travel stories or whatever. So these are some short, funny travel stories. Are these all stories that pertain to her? I guess so. Like her and her family, whatever. Okay. Okay. So this first one um, says file under embarrassing. So... One of my most embarrassing funny stories happened while I was backpacking in South America, specifically during a four by four tour from San Pedro to Chile. The trip takes you through the desert for three days to see other worldly sites like hot pink lagoons where flamingos search for food, um, an abandoned train graveyard, etc. During the trip, uh, you share a car with four and five other people. At one point, I was sitting in the front seat and it was getting really hot in the car and our driver didn't speak English, but I spoke decent Spanish, or at least I thought I did. Estoy caliente, I said, looking right at the driver. To my confusion, instead of rolling down the window or turning on air conditioning, he looked horrified or maybe confused. I decided it was probably my New York accent confusing him. So, estoy caliente, I said again, this time in what I thought was a more local sounding accent. He looked even more horrified slashed, confused. Um, Suddenly, the one native speaker in the car spoke up from the back. I'm assuming you're not meaning to tell the driver you're horny, right? (laughs) Apparently, I was saying I'm hot literally translated to another meaning of the phrase in that language. And as I turned bright red, (laughs) I decided I didn't really need to open the window and would just sit in silence and try to disappear into the melting car seat. (laughs) How embarrassing. Um, Yeah. So this next one I feel like is definitely something that would happen to me. I feel like something similar like has happened to me. You'll know. You'll Um, see. see. Um, The headline is trying to pee on a bumpy bus ride. Okay. (laughs) Um, So while visiting Sapa, Vietnam on our honeymoon, we had to fly into the large city of Hanoi. From Hanoi, we could have either taken a bus, a train or a rental car up to Sapa but because we are cheap, we decided to take the bus. Even further, we booked an overnight bus trip so that we could save one night of accommodation booking. We showed up at the bus station at 11.30 p.m. for a midnight departure and everything was going well. We boarded the bus and got back onto our beds, which was a row of five plastic cots wide with no cushions. We did get a blanket, though, and settled in for the night on our uncomfortable beds. At about 3 a.m., I woke up and had to pee. We were on the freeway, and the driver only spoke Vietnamese, so I couldn't communicate the fact that I needed to pee. Um, In the commotion, the driver had also noticed there was a payment issue with our booking, which my now-awake husband was trying to figure out. I still had to go, and it was becoming an emergency. Which, Mark, can you remember some Uh, certain times in the car where I (laughs) I was having an emergency? She's like, every time we have a long car ride, you gotta pee at the most inconvenient times. I literally tried to pee into a bag once. Jim, they don't need to know that. They they don't need to know that. It was a matter of desperation. It didn't work out. We ended up having to stop. We missed a surprise party thing because we had to stop and pee and I had to pretend I was pregnant so that I could cut the line because I would have peed right on the floor of that gas station. You're coming across like white trash, bro. Listen, I don't know what happened, but I had to fucking pee that day. And if I didn't, there would have been an accident on the floor. I was going to pee in a plastic bag if then I like the the people I don't <laughs> lie, I, told them I was pregnant. So basically, you're, you're a white trash piece of shit. Is exactly how the fuck you came across just now. <laughs> Thanks, Marv. I think I was just a little lady that had to pee real bad. So, I'm going to lie. And so I pushed my little stomach out and I said, Oh, please. Oh, please. (laughs) I have to pee. Please, but when I leave the bathroom, I'm going to look fine. (laughs) Do you know that I didn't even think of that when I exited? I was like, Bye. (laughs) No longer (laughs) pregnant. And and every girl in the line is like, This fucking shit. I don't even care. Like I said, I would have peed my pants. Um, Okay, anyway, back to this story. So uh, she says, I still had to go and it was becoming an emergency. The bus was still rocking and rolling down the Vietnamese highway and it was 3.15 a.m. My bladder was bursting and my new husband was trying to have a Google Translate conversation with the driver to figure out the booking issue. Um, I tried to get my pee emergency into the Google Translate conversation with no luck. Um, All I got was my husband handing me a bottle, a soda bottle that had the opening the size of a literal thumb. Um, Realizing my choices were non-existent, I tried to use the bottle. After some awkward maneuvering, I opened the floodgates and, as you might have guessed, peed all over my bed and my husband's bed. Thankfully, the sound of my pee spraying on the plastic beds did not come to the attention of any of our neighbors or the bus driver, or maybe they just purposely ignored it. But after figuring out the booking issue, my husband scooched back into his bed only to realize that he had laid into a lake of urine that had formed in the middle of it. (laughs) Like you didn't tell him before you had him lay down in the bed that there's uh, piss all over it? I on your bed. I don't know if you (laughs) want to lay there anymore. Um, So after some shock and stifled laughter, we cleaned it up with one of our blankets and had an extremely uncomfortable three more hours of travel. Wow. So that was that one. Um, And this is the last one. And this, Marv, reminds me. reminds me of something that happened to you while we were on vacation and I think once I tell the story we can just let the listeners minds go where no the the subject of this no. headline is uh the time I had my boobs massaged in Morocco um massages and spas are supposed to be tranquil soothing and calming but what happens when you try to have a relaxing spa experience in another country without doing your research uh, you can find yourself swimming in your underwear or having your boobs massaged. Mm. Uh, when my husband and I were in Morocco, we decided to go for a traditional Moroccan hammam massage at our hotel. Uh, first, we were asked to get undressed by the staff who only spoke French, so there were a lot of frantic hand gestures going on. Then we were taken into a room where straight away we could see a woman being rubbed down while completely naked—no robes, no doors, just all kinds of naked. We were shocked and immediately startled, thinking, "Wait, is this what a hammam massage is like?" Thankfully, not in our case, it's not what it sounds like, but it does get a little bit better. We'd worn our underwear because we actually thought we were getting a pleasant massage, just like in the UK, but we were wrong. (laughs) We were taken to a steam room where we were rubbed down with mud in front of strangers, completely naked, and then asked to shower it off. Next, we found ourselves swimming in a saltwater pool in our underwear. (laughs) Then we get to the massage part where we were separated and I was asked to strip completely naked from my underwear. This was fine while laying on one side. But then when I flipped over, I found myself having my boobs massaged by a total stranger. <laughs> Moral of the story, do your research and don't wear underwear to a Moroccan Hama massage. Marv's not saying anything because he doesn't want me to tell what happened to him. I'm going to tell what <laughs> no, happened to him. No, we're not so going to tell anybody what the fuck just happened I'll to tell me. the short version. We went to Mexico. Nope. We had a fabulous nope. massage on the beach. It was Mark's well, first time you, ever getting a you massage. You know what, maybe you should tell this story because... The way that story just came across, you're gonna make it seem like these people are gonna think like I got a happy ending at some massage parlor somewhere. No, t- certainly not the case. Um, Mark <laughs> Mark had his first massage while we were on a vacation in Mexico, and I was like all excited for him, like oh my god, you're gonna love this. It's on the beach. Oh. It's amazing. And they bring out the two like masseuses, and of course Mark gets a man. And after the massage is said and done. <laughs> Mark is like, hey, let me let me ask you something. Do they usually like massage your butt and go all up in your cheeks and stuff? And I said, no. Um, Aww. Dobby, Dobby's also saying, no, Dad, um, that's not normal. And yeah. And so we found out that Mark got his little booty touched at the massage and just let it go because he didn't know it wasn't normal. What was I going to say? I don't know but it was funny as hell when you told us, but... For y'all? Yeah, (laughs) sure. It was fucking hysterical. It was a fucking blast. But we tell this story all the time. It's so good because Mark was so dumbfounded. Um, But yeah, that's Mark's horrific massage story. But that's all we have for you today, guys. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode if that's, like, something you can do with something this horrific. No, there's no enjoying that. This is. I hope you found it interesting. Let's just say that. Oh, now now it interests me. Now the word interesting is spoken aloud. (laughs) When I say it, yes. Get the fuck out of here. All right. Rate, review, subscribe, all of the above. Thank you for listening. And we will be back next week with another episode. Toodles. (laughs) Toodles.